This is Phantom Power. Welcome to another episode of Phantom Power. I'm Mac Haygood. Today's guest is radio and media historian Elena Razlikova. We're going to talk about her current research on the legendary freeform radio station WFMU, among other things. But before we get into that, I just want to do a little bit of a callback to our first episode of this season, (laughs) my rant. Um, I think I might have mentioned at the time that I was a little sheepish about doing that episode. You know, sometimes I'll do an episode on my own research, but I generally keep this podcast focused on sharing and celebrating the work of other people. So I was already a little bit out of my comfort zone, wondering if I was being too self-indulgent in talking about myself and the challenges that we've been having in Ohio and at my university and the ways that I'm responding to those challenges by reshaping my own career. And then when I was done recording it, I decided I was really not comfortable with it. I was just like, I don't want to put this out. So I was going to pull it, but I didn't have another episode ready to go. And I was feeling really guilty about starting the season so late in the year. So I said, okay, whatever, just get over it. And I dropped the episode into the feed. Well, lo and behold, I guess that was the right move because I got more emails about this episode than any I've ever produced over the past five years, um, including a number of episodes that I literally worked on for months. So yeah, I guess you never know, you know, (laughs) I don't do audience research and I really probably should. Um, so maybe I wouldn't be so surprised right now, but your response did my heart good. I really appreciate the feedback. Please keep it coming. I love hearing from y'all. You can reach me at Mac, M-A-C-K, at mactrasound.com. That's spelled M-A-C-T-R-A-S-O-U-N-D.com. And in terms of the feedback that I did receive, many of you said you would like to hear some episodes about the publishing process, finding a literary agent, you know, trying to publish a trade press book, that sort of thing. So we will do that. Um, In a couple of weeks, I'm going to have on Warren Zanes, one of the most successful authors of popular nonfiction that I personally know. Um, And I asked Warren, uh, I just finished that interview, and I asked Warren about his career path, Um, a a lot of questions that I think you might find uh, useful. So look out for that one. And then early next year, we'll have my new agent on. well, she's new to me, but she, <laughs> she's certainly not new to publishing. Uh, her name's Jane Von Maren. She's a senior partner at Avitas Creative Management. She's not only a respected agent, but she was formerly uh, an editor and rose to senior vice president at Random House. So she really knows the ins and outs of the industry. But don't worry, we still, you know, we'll have a lot of sound stuff coming your way too. In December, we're going to have the great noise theorist Emily Thompson from the UK. In January, from the Netherlands, we'll have Carolyn Birdsall, author of the award-winning book Nazi Soundscapes and the author of the brand new book Radiophilia. But let's talk about today's episode. We're going to be discussing radio and algorithms with Elena Razlagova, associate professor of history at Concordia University. 
Elena is the author of The Listener's Voice, Early Radio and the American Public, which came out on University of Pennsylvania Press back in 2011. And she was the co-editor of the Radical Histories in Digital Culture issue of Radical History Review back in 2013. Since then, she has published articles in like so many top flagship journals, it's crazy, um, American Quarterly, Russian Review, Journal of Cinema and Media Studies, Radio Journal, Cultural Studies. She's quite prolific, and she's someone I'm always excited to talk to when I see her at conferences, and I thought it would be fun to talk to her on this podcast. So in this episode, we discuss some of her research interests, including U.S. radio history, audience research, music recommendation and recognition algorithms, and her current book project, which centers on the freeform radio station WFMU and the rise of online music. And towards the end of this episode, we talk to Elena about her research strategies as a historian working in the digital age. And for our patrons, we'll have Elena's What's Good segment, featuring something good to read, something good to listen to, and something good to do. You can join us at patreon.com slash phantompower. And now here's my interview with Elena Razlagova. Elena, hi. Hi, Mac. <laughs> it's good to see you. You're just yes. one of those folks that I have gotten to know basically just from conferences. You know, I've I've heard you give papers. I've uh, been at uh, meetings with you for like uh, radio studies, sound studies. Um, and so I'm interested, you know, I'm excited to just talk to you more because uh, it's always just at conferences. <laughs> That's true. And but we also have common interests. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So maybe just to get us started, could you tell us a bit about your background? Where were you born? What was your family like? And um, and then maybe we can talk about how you ended up studying radio and media. Okay, sounds good. Um, thank you for having me on the program. I'm very happy. I've been listening to it for a long time. Awesome. Um, so I was born in Moscow and um, uh, I was one of the first students to enter the United States as a college student um, oh. after the, uh, the, the Soviet Union was broken up a long time ago. And um, I studied, I wanted to do medieval history initially and um, it so happened that uh, one of my teachers was a great American historian, Lawrence Levine at uh, University of California, Berkeley. And I, start, I started studying with him and reading his books and reading the books that he assigned the class. So I decided I'm going to do American history. Uh, so I became an American historian and I went to several schools, uh, New York University and then George Mason University in uh, Northern Virginia. And I ended up working with a labor historian, Roy, Roy Rosenzweig, who wrote a famous book, um, Eight Hours for What We Will, about uh, leisure and the working class. Mm. So I decided to work on leisure too. Um, and at Berkeley, I worked, I did my honors thesis on cinema and I became interested in reception, cinema reception. Um, but by the time I got uh, to my PhD, I realized that radio actually has a lot more sources to study reception than cinema. Really? Because because it's a serial. Like any serial form will have more evidence because people write and then the narrative changes. And that's part uh, partly what my dissertation and book is about, about how the narrative of serials changes because of what people write in. Oh, yeah, that interplay between the storyline and the, the feedback that they get from their audience. 
Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's fascinating. You know, I actually didn't realize that you are a historian working in a history department. <laughs> I, didn't, I never realized that about you. It's because we, we meet at these media conferences. Um, and I actually, I feel like I've had almost the opposite trajectory where I didn't know much of anything about history. And yet through my study of media, I've sort of had to learn historical methods um, a little bit by the seat of my pants. So I'm really interested, maybe later on in our conversation, I can get some tips from you on uh, your historical research approaches. Okay. Um, so what is it about radio besides, it sounds like you had sort of more evidence ready to hand. Um, so studying radio was almost a very pragmatic move for you, but once you got into radio, were there any particular things about it that really fascinated you, certain themes that you found recur throughout your research? Mm -hmm. Well, I think both of us are really interested in sound studies, and mm -hmm. um, that is what I came to eventually. I didn't plan to at all, but um, listening to radio programs from long ago is just a fascinating experience, and uh, we don't understand how people like we, we can tell from a letter for example what people thought about the program but listening to it at the same time makes makes a lot of difference mm. um so uh, also i became interested in music and of course music has its own musicology is its own discipline and pop pop music studies is its own discipline but um working on radio uh past 1945 or even past 1940, you cannot avoid music because it becomes really important uh, from the 50s on with the advent of television and uh, kind of soap operas and crime shows become less important very quickly. And then it's just music on the radio. Yeah. It becomes really, uh, really interesting to find out. Yeah. About it. So, so you wrote a book in 2011 with this I mean, I think a really great title, The Listener's Voice. Um, and you've already sort of hinted at what that might mean, but can you talk a little bit about uh, what this great title is all about? Well, I was trying to figure out the whole question of the, of the, um, of the book was how um, listeners may have affected broadcasting. And in America, it's different because it's not state-sponsored, it is uh, commercial. It wasn't commercial in the 20s, so it's a very interesting period when engineers actually had a lot of influence as listeners on how radio stations operated. And in every decade, it changed um, more and more with the rise of networks. Um, of course, listeners would have much less influence than um, uh, in local radio, but still I was able to find uh, certain patterns when say soap operas would actually pay attention to letters. Um, Whereas like non-serial, non-serial radio shows had less of a relationship with the audience because they could, the audience could not help with narrative uh, because the narrative was just there for like one procedural, for example, um, mm -hmm. like the, um, mm -hmm. the gangbusters show, which is now in the national repository at the, at the, at the library of Congress as one of the American artistic achievements. Uh, it was a one um, episode show where people, um, one true crime case was dramatized. Um, and there were a lot of letters written in response, 
both from lit- from listeners and from participants, people who were depicted in the show and they didn't really like how they were depicted. But then nothing could be got, uh, done after, so their letters were very much ignored. Um, but it's still interesting to see how they, um, how people who were bystanders in these criminal um, kind of dra- uh, dramatized crimes um, uh, were protesting um, their own uh, depiction by um, by the broadcasters. So uh, that's so interesting to hear that you were researching true crime around that time because I mean I'm trying to remember what year did serial the podcasts come out do you, do you recall I mean, it was that must have been sort of like after you Maybe had been engaged 14 yeah yeah so it was yeah. after it was after your book came out but after you had just done this body of research on this yeah. kind of true true kind uh genre what what was your experience of serial like well i loved serial and of course it was a big explore like the this is how podcasts became viable, basically. It was a demonstration of podcasting as a long-term viable art form, which is much more in question right now <laughs> because they're kind of on... Um, some people are wondering whether like, there's going to be podcast winter. Um, yeah. Some of the people I interviewed for my current project actually um, talked about that. But at the time, it was really exciting. And actually, one... My book was well-reviewed in journals, but who cares about that? I got uh, a mention in a Time Magazine blog entry about (laughs) Serial. Because my argument about soap operas, the the, the fact that uh, the narrative was changed in relation to the letters received, uh, the author of the blog post was saying, well, this is what happens in Serial as well. Like, look, uh, they invite listeners' responses, and then based on what people write in, the, the next episode will change. Yeah, there's that feedback loop that happens, right, between um, the the audience and the content that gets produced. What was the timeline for the for the shows that were Serial shows? Was it quick, or was it like the next year that might show up in a script. Oh, no, no, no. It wouldn't be next year. It would actually be like in the matter of days or weeks. Wow. Because early on in, in the 20s, people just sent telegrams. There are these like during boxing matches, you could hear, you could basically hear from your listeners in real time. If the sound wasn't coming through, they would call or send telegrams. For some reason, telegrams were really in, even though phones were already available. People preferred to... Um, to send telegrams. That's um, like texting. Then, <laughs> People would yeah, prefer exactly. to text. <laughs> exactly. And then in um, in soap operas, because there were so many episodes, the writers were just churning them out one after another. But there were also kind of um, arcs of plot that were explicitly constructed in relation to what people would write in. Like they would ask audience opinion, like should I don't know, Bob and Jane get together and people would write in. And then depending on what they write, it was kind of audience research for even plot development. Um, And of course, I have to um, kind of caution because another aspect of network broadcasting, of course, is that uh, these shows were sold to advertising. Mm -hmm. Uh, So advertisers... um, uh, decided on what was happening on the show as well. And um, 
there's a concept of audience commodity that um, Kathleen Newman wrote about, and it comes from Dalton, um, Dallas Smythe, who's a Canadian um, media scholar. Um, and it's a Marxist concept that argues this, that audiences actually have no agency, that they're just a product sold to advertisers. And in part, that was true as well. Um, but I always try to find, basically, uh, there's a pessimist approach to that question, and then there's an optimist approach to that question, and I'm just more interested in the um, in the interstices where audience can have an an impact, a certain impact. Um, but I understand it's not very much. But by the time we get to late 30s and early 40s, it's already um, it's already very well. Um, oiled machine and yeah. advertisers have a lot of power. Uh, but at the same time, in the 40s, late by the late 40s, we already have the rise of television and the rise of disc jockey. And with the music and with the reemergence of local radio, it becomes, uh, again, possible for local listeners to affect uh, these radio personalities. So my argument is less about audience having power all the time, but more about these cycles of um, power and... Um, oppression or um, being sold without any agency. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely complicates this broadcast model uh, that that we have in media studies. Uh, you know, the, just thinking about the fact that someone in a centralized system like radio owns the transmitter tower and then everyone else has these relatively passive radios that they can change the channel, but that's about it. You can't broadcast individually and a lot of hay has been made over the transition between that old school broadcast model and the interactive new media of today where people can create content for one another but there was always feedback there was always an active audience that was interested that was that was communicating i mean i think that's one of the things that you're really highlighting and showing us the specificities of it like what what that was really like. And when it comes to that question of does the audience really have agency or do they just have the illusion of agency? I mean, that's just another one of those debates that we've had. I mean, it happened with once the Walkman came out, right? It's like, were people assuming a kind of agency, a sort of control over their own listening, or were they sort of just becoming perfect slaves to the culture industry even when they were walking down the street? You know? Yeah, I, that is a new... <laughs> In, in your book, I read that, that argument in your book. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 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 the debate, right? That's, that's gone on for a long time. Yeah. And this is a very much a media studies debate as opposed to media history debate because we would ask the question, when? When was it? Um, when did the audience have control? And when did or, or Walkman, when did the listener to the Walkman have control or uh, used the instrument to... Uh, to kind of extend uh, possibilities in life and when it was actually uh, just a sham and um, uh, the producer or the industry had an upper hand. I think it really depends on the situation. Yeah, I think there's no blanket answer to these questions, right? It really depends on the specificities and what exactly are you talking about when you talk about agency? Like what I was a kid, um, in elementary school, I used to call my local top 40 radio station and o ask them to play things. Occasionally, I even got my little squeaky voice on the radio. <laughs> and that's a certain kind of agency. Like he played the song that I asked. But then again, 
the only songs I knew about that I knew that they would play on that radio station were the ones they were already playing, right? I just happened to That's like true. one of those songs. Yeah, and it is a very small number. Oh, yeah, for There's sure. There's a science to it. Oh, there was. I guess there was different science in different times, yeah. But then we have also the same question with the rise of the internet, like with the users, do the users have power or not? And now they do not. Would Definitely the consensus is that basically users are just pawns in um, the surveillance and uh, data collection schemes of, uh, of the platforms. But it wasn't always that way in the, in the history of the internet. Yeah, and so this is, that's, a, that's a whole other question that comes up a lot in my uh, classes um, where we've moved from a paradigm of me actively going to the video store and pulling a video off the shelf and, and renting it to one where it's my behavior as a video viewer that is predictive of the next video that the algorithm is going to put in front of me, this kind of algorithmic culture, um, as it's been called. And so the thing that kind of interests me about your book is you point out that this, in a way, happened a long time ago as well, right? Because people used to actively write the radio stations, and that was the only feedback that the radio station had. But then eventually they moved to so-called scientific audience measurement. Um, so can you maybe talk about what that was like in radio, that, that move to studying the audience instead of the audience just actively telling you what it wants? Right. So there were these experimental uh, um, surveys done where people would just press a green button or a red button whenever they liked something in the program. And those are still done um, by producers. And these are a very formal. The way experiment is, is constructed doesn't really uh, leave any space for context, for example, for what people are doing in their in their real lives. Um, and it's so specific that it's really, in my opinion, very difficult to figure out what it means that the person pressed the red button or the or the, or the green button. And then the, the, the selection of these test objects is also a problem because you obviously would are not going to cover the entire spectrum of like class, race, and gender, sexuality, um, um, in in society, so these are probably middle class white people who are do who are doing this these experiments. And it's the same story as in face rec recognition te uh, technologies. Like you have a certain sample, and then your software recognizes a certain sample of the uh, of the population, and everybody else is out of the uh, of the system. Um, they're not recognized as people by cameras because the test subjects are only of a certain kind. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. uh, it's also connected, the rise of audience research is connected to political polling, obviously. They kind of come um, at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, like Gallup research starts in the mid-30s and audience research, scientific audience research starts at approximately the same time. And political research. Uh, Political polling is also a very inexact science, I would say. The same, with, with some differences, uh, there are the same methods that, that are employed today in uh, trying to figure out which show is more more popular, at least on television, maybe not on Netflix. Netflix has its own um, computation system, um, as were devised in the 40s. These uh, Either there's a machine attached to television or there's a person asking questions or there's like a laboratory setting where people press buttons. Yeah. 
I feel like I when I said algorithmic culture, I should have <laughs> I should have cited my former professor Ted Strefus and my uh, classmate Blake Hallinan, who uh, wrote the article on that. Uh, I was just thinking when you were talking about this history, do you think as someone who was born in Moscow that you have a certain anthropological distance from American radio culture that allowed you to maybe have different insights than a native scholar might have had? Well, I think that distance is more obvious in the project I'm doing now than the, okay. the, in the original one, because the original one was my dissertation was structured by the training that my professors gave me, and they were American historians who were also Americans. Um, so maybe my optimism about American commercial broadcasting brought, came from me not understanding uh, the uh, all the evils of capitalism. Because when you come to the United States from Russia, you kind of feel I've arrived to the land of milk and honey and everything's going to be great. And then very quickly you realize that it's not the case. But maybe some of that optimism was residually still there when I was doing my PhD. But I doubt, I really doubt it. I think it was very <laughs> much an American project. I did the um, a fellowship at the Smithsonian um, American History Museum. Um, it's very, and it's also shaped by that time because reception studies was big at the time. Everybody was trying to figure out what people really thought about these texts. And cultural studies was big. Uh, Birmingham School of Cultural Studies and its American um, version where uh, popular culture was considered um, important by because uh, large groups of people uh, were interested in it. Like Madonna was studied. Um, I don't know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right. things, uh, things like that. Um, so was it's a moment. different now. <laughs> yeah, it was a moment that passed, I think. And I think the book, the first book is of that moment uh, when you're trying to kind of apply um, apply these insights that are a reaction to like Theodore Adorno, Adorno. version of uh, mass, mass culture that trying to disprove that earlier version, which was its own kind of pessimistic, had its own pessimistic bent that probably needed to be corrected. But we really went way too far in the other direction too yeah i mean but it is yeah. you read theodore adorno on jazz and you know he just thinks it's this mass-produced commodity that capitalism just kind of shits out and, and i mean it's just not doesn't match with my experience as a jazz listener right and and that was that gap that a lot of scholars were trying to address in that moment and i can see how that would be attractive to you, uh, you know, coming from, I mean, gosh, the Soviet Union, basically, like you, your childhood, at least. I'm curious about, like, what was radio like then in that in that era? In the Soviet Union? In the Soviet Union, uh, yeah. Basically, radio in the Soviet Union was wired. So um, you only had three or four programs available. And they were all state produced. Um, even I think in the, in the late 80s, which I'm not quite sure because I listened to my grandmother's radio and my grandmother's radio was definitely like first program, second program, third program. It was all political news, which were, of course, bent to the government perspective. And um, I met somebody who started a music program 
uh, he, he's a film tra translator and um, a friend of the family. And he started a music program on Moscow radio and he played the Beatles and he played some of really cool um, shows. But um, it was a brief moment because once the bosses realized what he was playing, it was kind of, um, <laughs> it was deleted. If you had a transistor radio, you could listen to foreign broadcasting. So that's where people got the jazz and the Beatles and um, and then these broadcasts were taped and and shared, and then there uh, there was a record exchange, um, the, the black market for records uh, in the fifties even with these transistor radios, um, and uh, these uh, the, this music was recorded on um, X rays, so it would be uh, right. like hospital X rays um, cut as records, and the, there would be um, American music on them. Like oh, yeah. not just jazz, but rock and roll as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you could actually like drop the needle on like someone's lungs as they spin around. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I've, I, I remember reading about that. It's been a long time since I thought about that. I would love to collect one of those. Uh, it's called Rock and Bones. And uh, <laughs> there, there's a great historian in England who is working it right now. Fantastic. So these days, you're studying WFMU, which I think for a lot of listeners to this podcast will be a much loved um, and very familiar radio station. But for those folks who haven't heard of WFMU or, or who have kind of heard of it, but don't know that much about it, could, could you tell us a little bit about FMU and, and how you got interested in it? WFMU is a, the longest running free-from radio station in America. This is one of its distinguishing characteristics. Um, it uh, was um, born in 1952 as a college station of Uppsala College, uh, which was a Lutheran college in New Jersey, like in the middle of nowhere, East, East Orange, New Jersey. Hmm. And in 68, with the rise of Freeform Radio, which is this, the type of radio when the DJ has complete freedom but Freeform Radio was big in the late 60s because even commercial stations after FM radio, there was a law that included doubling of the of the shows between AM radio and FM radio owned by the same company. So FM bandwidth overnight became this empty space that needed to be filled and freeform radio became one of the... Um, methods of on of how to fill that space and a lot of countercultural figures went into that into that activities a lot of rock and roll was 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 played on the station and progressive rock what was then called progressive rock mm -hmm. like mc5 political groups as well the stooges like all of that so mc5 and and the stooges actually visited fmu so fmu was one of the several important college stations that went completely freeform for two years. And this is the first time when the station became kind of a nationally known, in part because the guy who signed MC5 and the Stooges to the Electro label and kind of launched their career, he was a DJ on FMU at the time, Danny Fields. But also it was run by students at the time who were all um, interested in counterculture and were political and just took over the station for two years 
revolutionized programming and started playing all this modern music that Lutheran professors didn't really approve of. Before that, it was more like classical music and talks and things like that. So that freeform tradition with one um, with one break, they, the counterculture people basically quit the station on August 31st, 1969. Hmm. And for a few years, it became album-oriented rock station, which is one one of um, kind of proggy, aggressive rock formats on commercial radio at the time. But after that, since 1975 and up to the present, it's completely freeform. And the DJs have complete agency of what to play on the radio. And it became famous after being kind of one of the major stations in the 60s. It became famous again in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s for playing music that you couldn't hear anywhere else. So a lot of these DJs were record collectors and then and then they would go crate digging for R&B records from the 50s or world music records and they would be experts on a particular kind of music but also people who played all all kinds of music in the same show or even in the same set. And also like cassette only labels at the time too, right? Yeah, or even home produced cassettes. That 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 was a big movement in the in the 80s and William Berger who was a DJ at the station he actually according to some historians he's the one who came up with the name lo-fi for that music it's not like 100% it's not proven 100% but that's the consensus and a lot of RTV Moore also one of the pioneers of home music recording put it on cassettes at home he was also a DJ at, at the station for a while so two just quick questions here how did you get interested in FMU? And then how does one research FMU? Is there an archive? Like what, what are you, are you doing mm -hmm. interviews? How, how do you go about this? Okay, well, the way I got interested in it was uh, through a friend whom you know also, David Sussman, music historian, who was a DJ at FMU for several years. And he basically told me about the, the station. I didn't know about it. And I didn't live, I haven't really lived in, in New York for a long time, I only was there for two years in my entire life in the in the in the United States. So he started just advertising his own shows. So I, I I listened to his shows at first, and then as you know, we often get asked by friends to contribute to different collections, on like uh, Oxford Handbook on Radio Studies or New Research in Radio. So I wasn't interested in the radio from the 30s and 40s anymore. By the time my friends start asking me. Like in the, in, I think my first article was published in 2013. And David told me about this interesting station and I just started writing about it. I wasn't even listening to any other shows except for David's when I started writing about it. Wow. And it's very, it has a really important place in the free and open software movement and free culture movement of the early 2000s. It was one of the stations that it started archiving its programs online in 2000. To, 2000-2001 and now has an archive from that time to the present, all of the shows. It created this collection free music archive that was widely covered at the time with a, with a grant from New York State that actually came out of a settlement, uh, kind of the Piola settlement by broadcasting corporations they paid to the state and the state distributed to people like Pauline or Oliveros and also WFMU. And they created this archive of music uh, licensed under creative copyright uh, that you could play on the radio. So wait, um, so wait, the 
the the great payola scandals which for those who don't recall this this was like DJs were getting paid to play certain songs on the radio by the record labels they were fined by the state of New York for doing this Are, not uh, then that was the 50s this is more 2000 that's a good question uh free music archive was established in 2009 and that's when the settlement happened so it was the same kind of thing that happened but not the famous one from the 50s okay that, so there was a second payola scandal in the <laughs> yeah, there was a, there's a minor payola scandal in new york state specifically <laughs> and so the state finds the radio stations the radio stations pay money to the state and then the state gives it to people like pauline Oliveros to make yeah, weird that's music. what happened that's what happened um <laughs> and uh fmu also got the money not just for the archive but also for uh setting up live concerts there were a, a lot of live concerts set up with that money in new york city Wow. I mean, why doesn't that happen more often? I love that. I know. We, we actually could do that. leading to weird art and <laughs> musical archives sounds amazing. Uh, exactly. So. Yeah. So, so yeah. So this is what I was started to write about in my first articles because yeah. I was interested more in the kind of open source movement, which was still happening at the time. It was before big tech, before we all got jaded about open source and free and free free software. And that was the question. And FMU actually was a, a great example of an institution that's an old institution and lived through other crises and also participated in this very modern movement for free culture and open source programming. Reading your work on this, it seems to me that a lot of times in media studies, we, we tend to focus on what the technology does to the genre, right? Like, mm -hmm. how does the technology, for example, there, a lot of hay has been made recently of how TikTok has changed popular music. People go straight to the hook immediately. They put in a weird sound effect that catches the ear. Also, mm -hmm. it gets more shares on TikTok, gets picked up more, um, and that is that changes music. I mean, that's definitely a thing, but what you seem to be more interested in is the ways that certain music genres and radio formats actually shape technology. So you're like totally flipping the script on what we often talk about. Would you say that that's a fair characterization? That's that's what I'm trying to prove. Yes, that the freeform format and the kind of philosophy that it created at FMU, but also at other stations, led these uh, DJs, these stations experiment with the medium and some of the pioneering experiments with algorithmic presentation of radio actually created, were, were created on these smaller college stations and not on corporate stations. And that's actually true. Um, Andrew Bottomley's book really talks about that, how the first experiments and broadcasting on the internet were on college stations and not on commercial stations. So that is true. And FMU, it was kind of different, played a different role rather than pioneering webcasting. It pioneered algorithmic uses for delivering, for playing or curating music. For example, the Free Music Archive had something like, I think they called it um, Creative Commons Pandora. Huh. They had a an algorithmic system by which you could listen to music. It was a little app created during a hackathon by some programmer 
and it pulled from Free Music Archive algorithmically with um, through connecting to the software that later uh, that was created by Echonest and later became uh, the basis of Spotify's engine. Oh, wow. So they were using, they were experimenting with the same kind of software, but for free music. That, so that's interesting. Yeah, that reminds me, you know, a little bit of the great internet and music researcher, Nancy Baim, her work, you know, she, she sort of argues that music fans, in a sense, built the internet, or at least some of the things that we tend to do on the internet. So sort of like practices of music file sharing grow out of the tape trading of Grateful Dead fans and indie music mm -hmm. fans, or blogging grows out of practices that were developed in indie zine culture. Even something like the early bulletin board system, The Well, that was like a lot of Grateful Dead fans on there, right? Exactly. Musicians had a big part in that. Grateful Dead for sure on the West Coast, but also a lot of zines went online pretty early and created BBSs online. And Kevin Driscoll's book is great on BBS as, an, as a kind of precursor to social media. Mm -hmm. The first try, first experiment with social media. And in, in New York, there was um, Echo. Um, it was an alternative to The Well, um, the um, a BBS in New York that was run by woman it was uh okay, stacy I, I i got i i learned yeah, about it from stacy, reading your work stacy horn okay yeah. stacy horn exactly and yeah. um that's uh that uh bbs still exists so echo still exists still exists and still has members um and when it started wow. it was um it was geared instead of being geared towards like the silicon valley version of capitalism as the well it was geared towards artists and women specifically she tried to recruit women and um there were a lot of cartoonists um there there was like a cartoon uh discussion group uh, there were there was a music discussion group and some of the people who worked on echo also in, ended up uh, helping to put WFMU online. So the first website was created in 1994 by Henry Loingard, who both was a master both for Echo and for WFMU. So there's a lot of connections between the BBS movement and um, WFMU's pioneering of online technologies. Yeah, there seems to be this kind of uh, historical overlap between like weird music, hacking, and like a uh, you know left wing politics. I'm <laughs> I'm actually thinking about a friend of mine from my days in New Orleans, uh, Alec Vance. He's a fan of Power Listener. Hi, Alec. I feel like he's like <laughs> right in that Venn diagram of like uh -huh. early computer nerd, you know, definite like leftist, and <laughs> but also really into weird music. Like, what is that all about? Like, do you have any kind of uh, historical explanation for how many people swim well, in that stream? I believe that there's an affinity specifically between like the freeform philosophy and the hacker philosophy as it existed in the in in the eighties. And it's not entirely it's not always left wing, but it happened to be like left wing, I think, in the demographic around FMU. And that the idea that A, there should be freedom to code and freedom to select music for broadcasting, and the idea that creation should happen through experimentation both Freeform Radio and hacker groups kind of agreed on that. Um, the, the hacker ethic was a phrase that was pretty common then. A anyway, so th there are several precepts in the, in the hacker ethic that have parallels in Freeform. And another one that's really interesting is humor. So huh. hackers really liked 
to include humor in the code uh, in the form of Easter egg. For mm-hmm. for example, they would include references to I don't know things they like, like radio stations or music or friends or whatever. And FMU also was interested in including humor in freeform um, DJing. So a lot of DJs ended up accepting phone calls, conversing with listeners, or inviting listeners to play their music over the phone. And if it was bad, that was even better that it was bad because <laughs> it was funny. And I interviewed this uh, a DJ from the, from the 80s who was also a comics um, artist, com- comic artist, Kaz, um, who once he was telling me about how when he started, he was really nervous and he just ended up dropping a bunch of cassette tapes on top of the record that was playing. So it was complete fail. It was really loud. And then uh, she kind of apologized on there and started over. And then somebody called and said, can you do it again? <laughs> so there was a, not only there was experimentation on the part of DJs, there was experimentation expectation on the part of listeners who wanted it to happen. So I think that's something that the, the hacker community and the freeform community definitely had in common. And I know I actually studied a listener uh, surveys from that period hmm. that are amazing, though. So in the two main demographics that come out are computer coders <laughs> and illustrators and artists. There's so many. So and I think comics artists, especially underground comics artists, also had this kind of sensibility of breaking the rules and trying to push the boundaries in their art that they founded at, at FMU as well. Oh man, that's, that's, that's totally amazing. You know, another, another tie-in that I had no idea about um, until reading your work was, was that Shazam has this sort of historical connection to FMU, right? Mm-hmm. Shazam doesn't. Does, it's, uh, no, it it's, doesn't? Spotify has a historical connection to it. Oh, oh, Spotify. Because thought, of the Echo Nest. That's the connection. And then also another argument that they're making or I'm interested in making, which I kind of made in one of the articles that was published, but I'm going to investigate it further, is that uh, we really should be thinking of what happened with big tech and the early experiments with algorithmic uh, programming in general um, as primitive accumulation that it's really clear now with the with all of the avenues for experimentation closed and most of the most of the profits and most of the benefits went to big corporations such as Spotify um, and even Shazam I really like Shazam because it started as a, as a as a basically gimmick like can we recognize songs or not and it was kind of a very small operation initially and then they also tried to become a platform and like add other services and eventually they were bought with apple so they're part of apple's platform of services hmm. but i open source the fact that it was volunteer based and free and organized around things like hackathons and open source project that where people contributed their labor uh, without com- compensation, that value was created in the non-commercial, non-corporate sphere, for sure. Maybe even non-commercial sphere uh, in, in with elements of that. So it was alternative way of creating value. And then corporations like Spotify just swoop in. They bought Echo Nest and all of these free services that Echo Nest created. Oh, include, okay, that is the connection with Shazam. I remember now. So they created 
Equinus created a version of music recognition that uh, basically back-engineered Shazam. And it was based on Music Brains, a crowdsourced music library. So it was an entirely open feature that was both a proof of concept that, that could be copied and also a service that people could use without paying. Mm. And then Spotify, when they bought Echonest, they just shut down that, that entire service. So mm-hmm. with the, with, within a few months, I think even both the Echonest recommendation engine was, which, which was available for others to use, including free music archive and the recognition agent engine, both of those were just defunct and not available because of Spotify. Um, so I think that's what we can call primitive ac- accumulation where there's really no way to justify, uh, the taking of resources. It's not, it's not like working in the factory, you know, it's, it, it's not like there's labor that you pay for and then you create value out of the discrepancy between the wage and the profits. There is no wage. So it was an entirely different economic model that got just gobbled up by these corporations. And the term you're, use, you're using for that is primitive accumulation? Yeah, primitive accumulation is Marxist, uh, Karl Marx's term that was used for appropriation of land from the from the peasants. And yes, there's a disagreement among Marxists whether it can be used in contemporary context, but there are quite a few Marxist theorists who would say that. There's also a term, um, that, there's a term translation that um, anthropologist Anat Singh uses. Hmm. Uh, she wrote this famous book, Mushroom in the End of the World. I don't know if you heard of it. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing book. And basically she describes how these mushroom pickers in Oregon who are just mushroom pickers, they're not, it's not a commercial enterprise. Like that mushroom ends up in Japan in very expensive restaurants through this process of um, translation, translation of value created in non-commercial context into a commercial capitalist value of someplace else. Uh, but I prefer accumulation because it's, I think it's more violent than that. At least in the, in the case of open source, it definitely was more violent. It was, and the, and the, we didn't, yeah, go just, ahead. just to unpack like this idea of primitive accumulation in, in the original context, you're talking about the appropriation of land, which is the commons. And here you're talking about this kind of effort that people were using with free software that then gets very similarly appropriated by corporations. Is that is that yeah, basically that's, the idea? That's part of it. And also the labor. So in Karl Marx's theory, you enclose the land and then the people who are using it become proletariat and then you can exploit it. And this is, you could argue that that happens with um, with these communes of hackers who start as open source programmers and then end up being hired by Spotify. And the one of the people who had it, Free Music Archive, mm-hmm. uh, actually is now a programmer at Spotify. Um, so this is basically what happens. So the question is how unprecedented that moment was with the open source software. So another way to name it is salvage accumulation, which is what Anna Singh is about, talks about. And she argues that if the process is ongoing, uh, which happens in many, in many industries, such as with these mushroom collectors, that is salvage accumulation because it just happens all the time. And and she argues that capitalism depends on these alternative economies to sustain itself. 
because mm. it always expropriates that labor and that and that value produced with that labor. Um, but I think the open source moment was more unprecedented. I think there was so much hope for these alternative modes of production, for alternative economies, and FMU was a big part of that, and that's why I'm interested in the station. And then it, right now, it's all of it seems impossible. Shazam, the story of Shazam. I mean, it, it, that as a piece of software, it almost felt like a miracle that this was possible, that it could listen through your phone uh, microphone, which was really tuned just for voice and to reject these ambient sounds. So that just as a sort of programmer to f figure out a way to get it to listen to what it, the phone was supposed to reject in a way, right? And, and on basis of very little information, identify the song was just amazing. But then beyond that, it also seemed kind of like a miracle in that it had this open source community around the technology but then through the kinds of, you know, dynamics that you've just explained, the dreams just seem to sort of curdle. Yeah. So there was a lot of optimism after after Shazam came out to uh, reverse engineer it and create an open open source, open free alternative or many free alternatives at, at, at the time and through lawsuits and um, um, kind of shutting down these projects that was ended fairly quickly but the fact that shazam never went never became a mega company still makes it in my mind kind of a sort of a not a success story exactly but it's a it's how technology should work it's a small problem that you're trying to solve with very precise programming and experimentation and then you solve it and you also solve it partially it never claimed to do everything it couldn't do classical music ever because different record uh, records of classical music would be indistinguishable it could do pop uh, very well uh, pop music and like short songs but it was good for that people were really excited at the time and then it, it never became anything more than that. Whereas the, the way platforms works, they, they start with one little service and then they expand into more services and they try to like gobble up more users and use their data. And this is how Spotify works with playlists, for example. So it started with algorithmic playlists and then it started hiring people to actually create them together with the algorithm. So there would be a name attached to the to the playlist. Um, and that is a different service. And then it got into podcasting and now there's podcasting and Spotify. So it just keep, keeps going and going. And one of the one of the things that I that I, I really like about your work, and you're you're always so interested in the sort of the agency of the users and the fringes of of audiences in a sense. But you know, in your your chapter that you wrote, we were about Shazam that I'm thinking mm -hmm. about right now. I remember there's a moment in there where you kind of focus on this the rise of unshazamable music as being a kind of genre of itself that people got really interested in like, oh, let's let's make, you know, let's let's play music that can't be shazammed. Yeah, so it all depends on the data, right? So one of the interesting moments, uh, uh, facts about Shazam is that the first 
assemblage of records that they worked with was obtained in these quasi-legal means. It was a labor exchange, and it's not clear that they actually had right to use it, to ingest it for analysis. So, but it was like... That sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> in today's day, AI age. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Just so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say you have, you know, generously put links to a lot of your scholarship, if not all, I don't know about the book, but, but other than that, um, on your website. So we'll definitely provide links to the things that we're talking about today, but your, your, your website is, is a great resource in itself. So I would like to switch gears a little bit and maybe talk about how you do what you do, which is doing this kind of historical scholarship in the digital age. You know, one of the things that just gets overwhelming, not just for academics really, but I think for anyone, is it's no longer a problem of where do I find information, it's how do I organize this abundance of information that I've found. So could we talk a little bit about your process as a historian in this digital world? What are your tools? What are your methods? Do you have hacks that you can share with us? <laughs> well, I think a lot of us use Zotero. Do you use Zotero? I I am a horrible EndNote user. I've tried okay. to use Zotero in the past and something about it living in the browser. I'm not a huge fan of things that live in a browser. Mm -hmm. um, I just, it didn't click with me, but I could be convinced well, it doesn't live in the browser anymore. It's a standalone program. Oh, okay. Well, then so I you might started like it. that many, many, many years ago. So basically, um, I think if we think about like PhD students and what what they should be taught, a they should be taught to have a, a program to create bibliographies. And my approach basically is uh, you should find open source free alternatives for anything that you're working with. And Zotero is a is the bibliography manager that is free and is managed uh it's been around for a very long time so it's not likely to die um uh, there are a bunch of academics who might maintain it with a big community of users so i would definitely recommend that that this, that this is what i use and another thing that you should teach students is that you should never write your papers or dissertations in word hmm. word is a terrible program and it doesn't promote piecemeal writing I, what I teach my students is that you should really um, separate your writing into chunks and you should have a file for every paragraph even, but mm -hmm. at least for, for every section of your paper, for every thought. And there are several programs that allow you to do that. Uh, Scrivener is one. This is probably the most, the, the easiest to teach with because it exists both for Windows and Mac. And it creates... Your draft is not one file, but a, a lot of different files organized as an outline. And you can focus on one paragraph and it's much easier than to start writing because you're not starting from a blank page. You're starting from one idea and you put an idea and then you just revise it into a paragraph. Uh, what I use is uh, called Obsidian, which is an open source. Uh, well, it's free. It's not open source actually, but it is a free program unless you want to sync it with a with an ipad or an iphone then you pay for for synchronization but if you just want to use it on your computer it's completely free 
and student can download it. It's a little bit more complicated to set up, but it works on the same principle that your, your writing is piecemeal. And the research part, you just rep- reproduce what historians always did. It basically, you need to have like the original way of historical research or humanities research in general, you would put facts and quotes on this card with a source and a page number. And then you would sort cards by subject or author or title. And that's what Obsidian does. You, you can create, you can take notes on it and you can sort it and, 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 and search through them. And then you organize your notes into uh, these, these research notes into an outline and there you have your paper. Hmm. Easily said than done, but that's basically yeah. it. So I, I am a Scrivener user and I've actually had like a long traumatic history with uh, digital notebooks. I was an early adopter. I was, I was using them back in like 2005, something like that. But then I, I, <laughs> I had trouble. I think I was using EndNote back, not, not EndNote, Microsoft OneNote back then. And then I switched to a Mac and that they didn't have that for a Mac. So then I adopted something called Circus Ponies Notebook, which mm-hmm. was this beloved notebook program for the Mac. And then, so I used that. I, all of my graduate school notes, dissertation notes are all in there. And then they went out of business. (laughs) (laughs) All of my stuff was stranded in this digital no man's land. And then I had to find like other notebook programs that I could. And basically cut to today and I'm a Scrivener user, but I've never quite been able to piece together my digital life from the past and I'm a little bit gun shy about committing to a, a notebook program anymore and and my notes are just a complete mess and all oh, over the place. So well, th- that's yeah. that's where I am today. Well, it's definitely true and it's true of Scrivener too. If you keep notes in Scrivener, it's a proprietary format and you have to extract them. But Obsidian, however, is just text files. So there's nothing to extract. They're just text files on your hard drive. And Obsidian is based on um, what is that th- that type of editing called? Ah. Zettelkasten, that that uh, Zettelkasten, or or I I you thinking software or uh, note taking? Markdown. I'm thinking things. of Markdown. Oh, it's, Markdown. Okay, okay. Now I know what 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 you mean. Yes. So you so, don't write formatted text. You it's all in plain text. Yeah. And the plain and then you use. Um, markers such as underscore before and after word for italics things like that so that's why it's really easy to recover the files because the files are just text files and that was my interview with radio and media historian elena raslagova I really appreciated her workflow tips at the end, and I've even started using Obsidian. I've imported all my old Apple notes into it, so hey, things are looking up for my new book already. Elena also has some pretty amazing suggestions for her What's Good segment, so if you'd like to check those out, visit patreon.com slash phantompower. And huge thanks to Elena Razlagova for being on the show. I've got a couple of new Miami University undergrads working for the show. Caitlin Fan and Niso Sasha are my new assistants. They've got huge shoes to fill. Those shoes belonging to my former student, Jason Megacy, who was just outstanding. Um, 
but they're already doing some excellent work. Today's show was edited by Niso Sasha with a bit of help from me, and our transcript and web work was by Caitlin Fan. Today's music was by me. I'll see you in a couple of weeks with rock star musician and author Warren Zanes. Take care. Take care.